good to see you all here. Um, shout out to all the costumes here. It's a lot of pandemonium out here. Gotta put on my paws. Um, we're going to be reading out of Ruth today. It's Ruth chapter 1, verses 11 through 23. <laughs> but Naomi said, Turn back, my daughters. Why will you go with me? Have I yet sons in my womb that they may become your husbands? Turn back, my daughters. Go your way, for I am too old to have a husband. If I should say I have hope, even if I should have a husband this night and should bear sons, would you therefore wait till they were grown? Would you therefore refrain from marrying? No, my daughters, for it is exceedingly bitter to me for your sake that the hand of the Lord has gone out against me. Then they lifted up their voices and wept again. And Orpah kissed her mother-in-law, but Ruth clung to her. And she said, See, your sister-in-law has gone back to her people and to her gods. Return after your sister-in-law. But Ruth said, Do not urge me to leave you or to return from following you. For where you go, I will go, and where you lodge, I will lodge. Your people shall be my people, and your God, my God. Where you die, I will die, and there will I be buried. May the Lord do so to me, and more also, if anything but death parts me from you. And when Naomi saw that she was determined to go with her, she said no more. So the two of them went on until they came to Bethlehem. And when they had come to Bethlehem, the whole town was stirred because of them. And the women said, Is this Naomi? She said to them, Do not call me Naomi. Call me Mara. For the Almighty has dealt very bitterly with me. I went away full, and the Lord has brought me back empty. Why call me Naomi when the Lord has testified against me, and the Almighty has brought calamity upon me? So Naomi returned, and Ruth the Moabite, her daughter-in-law with her, who returned from the country of Moab. And they came to Bethlehem at the beginning of barley harvest. Now Naomi had a relative of her husband's, a worthy man of the clan of Elimelech, whose name was Boaz. And Ruth the Moabite said to Naomi, Let me go to the field and glean among the ears of grain after him in whose sight I shall find favor. And she said to her, Go, my daughter. So she set out and went and gleaned in the field after the reapers. And she happened to come to the part of the field belonging to Boaz, who was the clan of Elimelech. Let us bow our heads in prayer. Heavenly Father, just pray that you bless this sermon of Sid's, help him to be lion-hearted, help him to be courageous, um, help him to um, preach the gospel and um, in a way that God will affect us today, um, that will impact our daily lives. Help this to not be the only thing, time that we think about you every week. God, help, um, help us to really go out and to um, give you all the glory in everything that we say and do. Um, today, God, I just want to... I'm, I want to pray for campus outreach as well and what they do, um, help their work to be um, fulfilled in your eyes as well, God. And uh, we just pray that you would bless them in this journey with us. We pray all of this in Jesus' name. Amen.
pretty much everything could be interpreted as ridiculous with a lion costume on, so. Hello. <laughs> yeah, I think just for a second, I'll give you the full effect. So, there we go, there we go. <laughs> okay. So, there we go. Um, I'm actually gonna take this off in a second, trust me, it's very distracting. Um, but, hey, to the courageous, thanks for the nice costumes. Uh, really proud of that. Glad you're here. Um, how are we doing? Uh, uh, we've all got costumes on. Come on, a little excited, a little excited. My kids are stoked. It's, it's Halloween. Um, yes, uh, my name is Sid Drew, and, and I still somehow am in the campus ministry, even though I'm dressed in a lion costume. Uh, and I don't know if you knew this, but we spent many, many minutes uh, at staff meetings the last few weeks collaborating on a costume. Um, and so we uh, decided that we'd honor both Halloween and Reformation Day simultaneously by uh, giving an homage to the Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe. So if Reuben uh, raises his hand, you see the wardrobe in the back over there. Maddie's the White Witch, uh, bold choice. And we've got Tumnus, where's Tumnus? And uh, and then Tim took his hat off, but he was the lamp post, which was uh, pretty amazing. There you go. (laughs) So, uh, and I didn't choose to be the Jesus figure, just for the record. That was not my choice. Okay. I think the beard was really the, the tipping point, not character. Okay. So anyway, uh, just a little bit about REF, and then we'll get started. REF is a Christian campus ministry that exists to serve you all, uh, wherever you are and however you are. And we really mean that. We mean that REF isn't for one kind of person. We're not, uh, we're not meant to be for one scene on campus. We're not meant to be for one kind of personal background, or even many. We're trying to be every seen every personal background that anyone could feel welcome no matter where they were with Jesus or with Christianity. Um, whether you call yourself convinced or unconvinced, a believer or a spiritual skeptic, whether you call yourself none of the above or um, maybe something in between, whatever, wherever you are, we're just glad you're here. That's all to say thanks for coming. That's all to say uh, we hope that you feel welcomed by us. We hope to welcome you and that um, we're really excited if you're new, especially. Um, I don't usually preach in a costume, but I, I could just do that every time. The tail is going to be really distracting. I'm just going to put that out there. So um, anyway, so thanks for coming. Anyway, this semester in large group, uh, we have been looking at the books of Judges and Ruth and a series I've been calling Love in an R-Rated World. So Love in an R-Rated World. Uh, we spent the first half of the semester looking at uh, the book of Judges, and we spent a good deal of time uh, on that constant reminder just how R-rated or um, TV-mature our world is, uh, how it can be just all sorts of chaos, all sorts of violence. Uh, yet at the same time in the book of Judges, we, we did see, and you would see if you read it, um, God's love. He's so caring and he gives this often shocking rescue of his people over and over and over again. And really the book of Ruth invites us to, to focus in on this love on a smaller and more intimate scale. So the question becomes, how do ordinary people move forward in an R-rated world? That's what we're looking at. How do two widowed women and a nearly forgotten farmer act out the intricacies of love in the days when the judges ruled? 
How do we at Davidson live lives of positive love in a world that is permeated with so much negative stuff, right? Hurricanes and half-hearted relief efforts, violence in Charlottesville and Las Vegas and even New York, sexual harassments and, and assaults in Hollywood and even uh, among friends and family with the hashtag MeToo, or in the ongoing geopolitical chaos, whether it's Russia or Kenya or Niger or Israel or Syria or North Korea, not to mention the daily and distinctly Davidson hotspots, family, friends, classes. The kind of turmoil that we live in is, is pretty remarkable. And so through their personal histories, I would argue that Naomi and Ruth and Boaz, uh, we get to ask these real loving questions by looking at their lives. What's my purpose? What am I put on this planet to do? And we get to ask those questions in a real R-rated world that we live in. But the book of Ruth Center, if it's, if it's artistic focal point, if you will, sometimes subtly in the background, which we're going to talk about a little today, is actually God. God, in the words of Gerard Manley Hopkins, the Holy Ghost over the bent world broods with warm breasts and with, ah, warm wings. So we're going to look at that a little bit today as we, um, as we look at and ask about our love and God's love. Would you pray for me first, though? Father, I do pray that you focus our minds and our hearts. Um, I just pray that you would remove the distraction of a onesie that's too small and uh, just all the other things that are going on, on uh, in our hearts, just whether it's the stress of school or whether it's friendships or whether we're just feeling great um, and we're wondering um, what you have in store for us in this hour or we're wondering how can I get out of here. I pray that you would just be with us wherever we are, that you'd meet us wherever we are, and I pray that you would walk among us, that you'd work within us and in this setting, that we'd be able to see you, Jesus. That's just our prayer. That, Jesus, we'd get a glimpse, uh, maybe even get to stare down your beauty, your believability. I pray that you'd be high and lifted up. And I pray that we wouldn't leave this room without sorting through our hearts, sorting through our minds, sorting through our lives uh, in your presence. We ask these things in your name, Jesus. Don't leave us the same. Amen. So in a speech-turned-essay, there's this poet and farmer, and I would argue slow food prophet, named Wendell Berry, and he confesses in his writing, I have been urgently, I've been urgently interested, but frequently uneasy reader of the Bible. Okay, so that's... He's talking about in this essay called The Burden of the Gospels. Barry then lays out what he calls the embarrassing questions that the Bible imposes on any reader, serious reader. And he has a couple of questions. The first question is this. If you had been living in Jesus' time and had heard him teaching, would you have been one of his followers? If you had been living in Jesus' time and you'd heard his teaching, would you have been one of his followers? And to answer this question honestly, uh, Wendell Berry asks us to imagine walking past a small town local courthouse green and hearing a man named Joe Green, or some people saying J Green Joe, saying things like, don't resist evil, or when people cuss you out, give them a hug, or when people won't let you borrow their clothes, you get to give them a week's worth of yours. Do all this because that's how God's children act. 
And then he wants you to imagine that Joe Green kind of pivots and he looks at you over the heads of the crowd. He makes eye contact. He calls you by name and says, I want to come to dinner at your house. Would you really say, let's go? And then, Bar- then Wendell Berry's second embarrassing question, again, from a self-described unconfident reader of the Bible, is this. Jesus says, if you love me, keep my commandments. Can you be sure you would keep Jesus' commandments if it became excruciatingly painful to do so? So can you be sure you would keep Jesus' commandments? Second question. Can you be sure that you would keep Jesus' commandments if it became excruciatingly painful to do so? And to help us answer this question, honestly, Barry tells us a story that honors some of the hard Christian histories behind things like the Protestant Reformation. And in 1569, it's a true story, in Holland, a Mennonite man named Dirk Willems fled his death sentence for believing in the wrong kind of Christianity. He's running, and he's being chased after. He's seen, and then he's been chased after by what's called a thief catcher, which is sort of like a 16th century Holland marshal. Um, and he's chasing after this fugitive, and they're running across a frozen body of water. And um, as they run into the ice, Willems gets over safely, but then the marshal doesn't. He breaks through the ice into the freezing, swirling water beneath. And it became clear very quickly for Willems that without his help, the marshal would drown. And so Barry puts the historical problem this way. What did Dirk Willems do? Was the thief catcher an enemy merely to be hated? Or was he a neighbor to be loved as one loves oneself? Was he an enemy whom one must love as a child of God? Was he one of the least of these, my brethren? So Willems decides to turn back, put his hands out to the pursuer, and lift him out of the water and save his life. And then the rescued thief catcher wanted to let Williams, Willems go, but couldn't, and was forced to arrest him. And Dirk Williams was then tried, sentenced, and burned to death by a lingering fire. For his quote-unquote unorthodox Christian belief, which saved another man's life. So if you were doubting or exploring the Christian faith at this point, maybe you're, you're thinking to yourself, clearly not worth it. <laughs> uh, that is a terrible, terrible price to pay. But I'd also maybe argue deep down inside that it's kind of oddly compelling, right? There's sort of this oddly compelling thing that Jesus, a relationship with Jesus, knowing who Jesus is, um, being with Jesus could, could produce such incredible altruism or love, even in the face of incredible injustice. And really, Barry's two embarrassing questions and his like story about Dirk Willems are meant to help us just to understand this real point, just how uneasy Ruth's love for Naomi was in this passage. It's just kind of pictures to help you get into the story and realize how uneasy Ruth's love for Naomi is in this passage. Okay, you see, in Ruth chapter 1, verses 11 through chapter 2, verse 2, these verses challenge us to love uneasily like Ruth. There's a challenge in there. Even as they comfort us that Jesus, Ruth's descendant, loves us even more uneasily. Okay, so we're challenged on the one hand to love like Ruth, even as we're comforted by the love of Jesus that's even more of an uneasy love than we're to give. And so we're just going to look at um, the challenge and the comfort of Ruth and Jesus 
and their love by applying Ruth's story to, what, to our faithful love and to God's gracious love. And so if you've been here before, you'll know that this, handout, this outline's about to be on the bottom of your handout. Uh, you can look there as I run through it. Okay, so first point in chapters 1, verses 11 through 22, and chapter 2, verse 2, our faith looks like an uneasy love beyond circumstances. So we're going to look at an uneasy love beyond circumstances. So we're challenged to boldly speak and then humbly act out of an uneasy love. Okay? And second, in chapter 2, verses 1 and 3, we're going to look at God's grace and how that looks like an uneasy love beyond coincidence. So we're looking at a love beyond circumstances, our love, and then we're looking at God's love beyond coincidences. Again, it's on the bottom of your handout. And we're going to begin with where our passage usually begins. And we're going to look at the beginning of the chapter 1, verses 11 through 22, and then a little bit in the chapter 2. With uneasy love beyond circumstances. And as we're transitioning, you'll note that this is not a three-point sermon. Uh, departure. Uh, I, don't, I still believe in the Trinity. Uh, I still believe that there are three persons in the Godhead. But, you know, Jesus does have two natures. So we just sometimes have to do things in the name of... In the name of um, doctrinal purity. Okay. In a lion costume. Okay, so in chapter 1, verses 1 through 19, okay, basically we're going to give a kind of huge recap. We watch Ruth's uneasy love unfold through her almost uncomfortably bold words, right? Uh, as we read and discussed last week, just to give you a little bit of a recap, um, Naomi and her family left their home in Bethlehem, Israel, and they, and they left due to a withering famine. They traveled 70 to 100 miles to the east to Moab, which is modern-day Jordan, uh, which was a much more fertile place, had a lot more rainfall and actual rivers. And so in Moab, Naomi's husband, unfortunately, Elimelech, and both of her sons, um, Malon and Kilion, all died within the span of a few years. So after about 10 years in Moab of living there, Naomi hears that the Lord God has visited Bethlehem, that he's brought grain again, that the drought is over. And so she takes her daughters and starts to leave Moab to go back to Bethlehem. Okay. But in the midst of her grief, Naomi has this realization. Oh, right. They're from Moab. They're not Israelites. So I'm asking them to come and abandon their family I'm asking them to abandon their homeland. I'm asking them to abandon the chance to remarry and start again. And so Naomi is basically in the, these verses, we pick it up sort of in the second round. She's begging Orpah and Ruth to let go, to give up um, their relationship, to leave Naomi without emotional, social, or financial support whatsoever. She's doing this for their good. And so beginning in verse 11 of our passage tonight, Naomi's redoubling her efforts, her tightly braided common sense proof uh, argument for Orpah and Ruth to go home. <coughs> Just get out of here. Here's, here's the Sid Drew and authorized paraphrase. You ready? I've got nothing. Nothing for you. No sons now. No prospects for sons in the future. And even if I did have twin late in life sons for you, by the time they'd be man enough for you, your mid-20s would be the 40s, and you'd hit menopause. That's basically what she's saying in these verses. Okay? So in verse 14, uh, we're told that Orpah gets the hint and decides to leave the Israelite uh, version of The Bachelor and try out for the Moabite next season of The Bachelorette. 
She takes off from one to the other. And so, but we see that Ruth, Ruth is actually clung. She clings to Naomi. And so Naomi, instead of going, hey, that's great, triples down. Three times now, she tries to shake off Ruth for good, for her own good. And she says, look, see your sister-in-law, Orpah, she's gone back to her people. She's returned to her gods. She's retur- so go ahead and return after your sister-in-law. Take off. And so Naomi tries the age-old methods of peer pressure and Israelite stranger danger. And they don't succeed. So her well-meaning attempt of Ruth is met with what Cynthia Ozick calls an incandescent reply that has set 30 centuries trembling. An incandescent reply that has set 30 centuries trembling. Do not urge me to leave you or to return from following you. For where you go, I will go. Where you lodge, I will lodge. Your people shall be my people and your God, my God. When you die, I will die and there will I be buried. May the Lord do so to me and more also if anything but death parts us. There is like a ton here. But Ruth begins by telling Naomi that her continual attempts to move uh, Ruth back to where she came from are so hurtful. Like sharp blows to her soul, below the belt shots. Okay, in the original Hebrew, do not urge me is actually more translated, better translated, stop afflicting me. So then Ruth proceeds to make this covenant vow, an unconditional pledge of loyalty. And from her word choice, it's totally obvious. Ruth understands that her life with Naomi will be uncomfortable. The word lodge in the Hebrew implies nights of wandering. And so further, Ruth makes this pledge to continue even after Naomi's death. And she seals it with a sworn oath, right? May the Lord do so to me and more also of anything, but death parts me from you. And this along with Naomi's reaction, verse 18, leads almost every scholar I read on the subject, except for one, to say that Ruth is after Naomi's God. That's what the motivation here is. A God that Naomi can cry out to, a God that Na- who is present in the very teeth of Naomi's pain, a Lord who makes personal visits, a Lord who's in the midst of one widow clinging to another. And so, yes, life is dark and depressing for these two widows somewhere between Moab and Bethlehem, but Ruth spots a pearl of great price. She sees a treasure buried beneath it all. And Ruth's willing to sell everything that she has to give up life as she knows it to get it. But before I kind of go into the specifics of the treasure, that divine treasure that Ruth sees, I want you to please notice what Ruth is signing up for. Again, I I, I try to give you this incredibly um, difficult and challenging intro because I want you to see this. Um, Ruth's incandescent reply is met in verse 18 with a shrug, right? Ruth gives away her future for Naomi's future, and Naomi doesn't even say thank you. She's like, "Eh, eh, meh, eh." right? Paul Miller helps us to see that this loneliness is at the heart of true love sometimes, right? True love is defined by the Bible and life, not by Disney. True love is one-way love. It's love without an exit strategy. 
You bind yourself to the object of your love, no matter what the response is. You res your response to the other person is entirely independent of the way that the person has treated you. Love like this is unbalanced. Love like this is uneven. There's nothing fair about this kind of love. It is a determination to do someone good, no matter what. Love always narrows and limits our lives. It boxes us in. Love always involves a voluntarily, voluntarily, a voluntary, excuse me, narrowing of life, a selecting of imperfection. Love is so specific, it boggles the mind. In other words, Ruth shows us a love that's uneasy. It's an uneasy love. So what does that do to their lives? I think a lot, but let me give you one aspect, one unsurprised, maybe surprising aspect. The New York Times columnist David Brooks picks up on love specificity. Okay, he sort of zeroes in on this idea that there's a voluntary, voluntary narrowness at the heart of love, but there's also this voluntary narrowness at the heart of figuring out what to do with our lives. Okay? He has this great article that he wrote around the May commencement time uh, a few years ago, and it's called It's Not About You. Um, and basically, Brooks laments that most college graduations, most words spoken to seniors and to college graduating seniors, are they're told to do this. Follow your passions. Chart your, your course. March to the beat of your own drummer. Follow your dreams. Find yourself. Right? But this talk is of no help to the central business of adulthood, is Brooks' contention. He says, adulthood is about finding serious things to tie yourself down to. It's about making sacred commitments to a spouse, to a community, to a calling. Okay, and look, Brooks is by no means a professing Christian. He's a New York Times op-ed columnist, okay? But he's counseling us to focus in on what makes us righteously upset. He's asking us to say, where do you get wholly agitated? Where do you get fired up? Where do you get sad? Listen to the way he puts it. Most successful young people don't look inside and then plan life. They look outside, they find a problem which summons their life. A relative su suffers from Alzheimer's and a young woman feels called to help cure the disease. A young man works under a miserable boss and must develop management skills so his department can function. Most people don't form a self and then lead a life. They are called by a problem and the self is constructed gradually by that calling. Life comes to a point only in those moments when the self dissolves in some task. The purpose in life is not to find yourself. The purpose in life is to lose yourself. So look, at a crossroads, somewhere between Moab and Bethlehem, Ruth sees an elderly woman in serious need. And she decides to get purpose. She decides to dedicate herself to lose herself in tackling Naomi's problems with her. So here's my question for us. Like, what is it about this world that makes you righteously upset? What in the world gives you a holy agitation? Is there a set of specific and narrow problems that sadden you at a soul level? Look, there are many, many, many positive reasons I became a pastor. 
specifically a college pastor. But I would say one of the large reasons that I am doing this in a lion suit on Tuesday night is because I have a righteous indignation with Christian ministry as usual. I have a deep compassion that borders on sadness for the spiritual side of college students and for the neglect of that aspect of our humanity, even by my sweet, nourishing mother, Davidson College. So yes, I'm in a lion costume because I get angry and sad (laughs) and because I buy into a narrow and very specific kind of love. And I hope that you can find that too. And so at the end of chapter one and the beginning of chapter two, we actually see that Ruth's purpose in life, her vocation, her calling, her profession, her whole life moves from bold words into humble actions. Okay? So she moves from just saying things to doing things. Verses 20 through 22 tell us that Ruth returns to a homeland that is not her homeland. Okay? Exactly none of the women at Bethlehem that come out to greet Naomi even acknowledge Ruth's existence. Look, Bethlehem was probably a town of a few hundred or less people. Maybe it had a gate. Maybe it didn't. There's a lot of scholarly commentary about that. Not sure why. But basically, it's small. And so Naomi, coming back after 10 years, is like this big deal. Like small town, big deal. Okay? And so she's greeted with the gossip and the speculation about, oh, you changed so much. Is that you? Like that kind sort of southern way of, bless your heart, Naomi. How are you doing? Okay? And probably, like, she's just, she looks like she's been through the ringer because she kind of has, right? She's got trails, well-worn trails of tears on her face that have maybe hardened into wrinkles. She's had sleepless nights. She's been scrounging for odd jobs in Moab. And she responds to the womanly excitement in Bethlehem to the small-town gossip mill at her expense with a speech And the speech is pretty epic, if you think about it. Okay, she says this. Hey guys, I've changed for good. Okay, I was pleasant and full. Now I'm bitter and empty. Goodbye. (laughs) Okay, that's what she does. And so in her speech, in her obvious anguish, Naomi did what the other women of Bethlehem did to Ruth. Did you notice that? Ruth did not even get a verbal footnote. Right? Totally ignored. In fact, Ruth is just one more detail of Naomi's emptiness. I'm empty. I came, I went away full. I came back empty. Ruth's like, hey, hey, over here. Right? And so Ruth's return to Naomi's homeland, her commitment to Naomi's good, is not just unthanked verse 18. It's, it's not even just ignored in verses 28 through 21. It is, dis, it is dismissed as empty. Naomi has lost her spouse. She's lost her children. She's lost her financial future and her fortune if she had any. And she's relocated to a place of gossip that is haunted by memories of happier times. That's where she is. Naomi is likely clinically depressed. Okay. And so her world awareness shrinks in on herself. In the words of Philip Yancey, pain narrows vision. The most private of sensations, it forces us to think of ourselves and little else. So pain narrows vision. 
pain, the most private of sensations, forces us to think of ourselves and little else. And so Ruth, Ruth, who is herself wrapped in the muffled sadness of widowhood and being a total outsider, Ruth is completely forgotten and must again practice an uneven, unfair, one-sided way of love. She is willing to pursue her friend even when she's pushed away. And at this point, we just have to stop and ask, how in the world is she continuing to do this? How can she do this? How can she or I or you practice this kind of specific, this kind of narrow, this kind of often unreciprocated kind of love? Whether that love is this challenging profession, maybe that's what it feels like to be a student right now, one-sided. I do all the work, they have the red pen, okay? Or maybe it feels like this difficult relationship. I didn't choose my family, we're together. Or maybe it's some, a sometimes difficult person. I don't know how to deal with that person's depression. I don't know how to deal with my depression. And we can speak and we can do this pursuit of love because it's exactly the kind of uneasy love God practices. He practices uneasy love and then some. Do you get that? <laughs> this God is who Ruth saw behind and beyond Naomi. And she gave her life to him. Loving Naomi was certainly for Naomi, but it was also Ruth's way of knowing God's love. Ruth, who meets Boaz in Bethlehem, and with him becomes Jesus' great, 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 times 28, grandmother, okay, 28 roughly. Ruth pictures for us God's ferocious, one-way, uneven kind of love, right? God made a heavenly vow among the three persons of the Godhead, between the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. God vowed to cling to us even when we thanklessly shrug. God, by his Spirit, follows us to our homes. He follows us to our families, to our halls, to our apartments, to our teams, to our clubs. And in the frenzy of gossip, we can sometimes just flat out ignore him. Something goes right, and I forget to thank him. Something goes wrong, and I am so quick to blame him, or worse, dismiss him. I'm empty and anxious. I'm empty and depressed, or empty and bored. But there is Jesus. He is clinging. He is relentlessly saying to you in that moment, where you go, I will go. Where you lodge, I will lodge. You're my people. And there I will be your God. That is a truly uneasy love. And we get to see the way that Ruth connects her uneasy love for Naomi to God's love in chapter 2, verse 2. Okay, so Ruth turns to a way that God promised to care for people like her, people like Naomi and Ruth. Because you see, Naomi is so depressed she can't even get out of bed. And therefore, Ruth decides that she's got she's to bring home the bacon. She's got to get the food. And so she tells Naomi, she asks her permission in a kind of amazingly kind way. She says, hey, can I go out to the food and glean among the ears of grain after him in whose sight I find favor? Can I translate that for us? Because that's in English, but I'm going to try to make it more English here. Okay. Ruth and Naomi have found no food 
they are going hungry. So Ruth's going to spend this day and many, 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 many other days in the future in the hot sun of a stranger's field, mostly in a crouching position, hands raw to the touch from gathering small, mostly picked over stalks of barley that she has sawed with a sharp stone so that she and bedridden Naomi can actually eat and live. And I want you to see how faithful that choice is that Ruth makes, because it was also God's prescribed way of helping the hungry in that time. You see, in the Old Testament, God commands Israel not to harvest their fields to the edges, so that the poor, the foreigner, the orphan, and the widow can gather the remaining grain there. And just in case you didn't catch that, Ruth fulfilled three out of those four categories. She's foreign, she's poor, and she's a widow. Okay? And she realizes that that's God's way. She's so, become so familiar with Naomi's God that she realizes that she can take up that task. But I also want to see that gleaning is like so risky because she's at the mercy of the field's owner and the field's workers. They may not practice God's law. They may resent that Ruth is trespassing on their land. Or worse, women, especially foreign women, the, po- the text makes a special point to point out how Moabite Ruth is, she's a Moab, she's Moabite, over and over again. Not because the text cares, but so that we can identify that she is a foreigner. And foreign women in particular could be easy prey for physical and sexual assault in the fields. Yet chapter 2, verses 1 and 3, our final point, suggests that Ruth's faithful risk, our love, is not done in some vacuum. It's not done without God on the scene. And so we begin to see that God's grace isn't, looks like an uneasy love beyond coincidence. Okay? So after getting Naomi's blessing, chapter 2, verse 3 tells us, Ruth set out and went and gleaned in the field after the reapers, and she happened to come to the part of the field belonging to Boaz, who was the clan of Elimelech. Literally in the Hebrew, this event is even more stressed. Her chance chanced upon that's literally what it says her chance chanced upon the part of the field belonging to Boaz okay so the narrator is awkwardly phrasing this on purpose because he or she wants to make a clear point Ruth did not know Boaz she didn't know where Boaz's field or property was located and when she came to that field um, what happened there later we'll read in chapter 2, looked like and felt like from her perspective, her human vantage point, complete chance. And so we're going to look at this more next week, but just look at what the consequences of stumbling upon Buzz's property are in the short-term food, long-term marriage and children, longest-term Jesus. But it just happened to happen. Chanced upon chance, Okay? That's not the case. <laughs> and that's what the narrative is trying to underline by irony. Okay? But for now, it's important to stress that the narrator is stressing this. Okay? Like all of our moments, this moment was divinely orchestrated. Right? It was a symphony of God working in and through human choices. He's working in and through human choices to affect outcomes. You see, the reason that God has been nowhere mentioned by the narrator since chapter 1, verse 6, is because to the narrator, 
it's obvious he's everywhere. <laughs> like, why mention the obvious over and over and over again? Okay? So for the last couple centuries, that's not obvious to us. In the Western part of this world, the presence of a God or the supernatural behind the scenes, being sovereign, whatever, like ruling, that has been completely ignored or dismissed. Okay? And so sociologists as far back as Max Weber in the early 20th century have observed like, hum- the human effects of that, of sort of industrialization, how impersonal it is, or this sort of opposition towards any kind of collective structure or institution, okay? that kind of meaning. And so simply put, the observable downsides of the late modern West, that's what we're calling this era right now. Some people call it postmodern. Some people call it hypermodern. I'm calling it late modern. Okay? You can deal with it later. I have a tail on. Okay? So, obviously I'm a scholar. <laughs> so, in a onesie. Okay, so, anyway. The obvious downsides of the late modern West are increasingly isolated individuals and what Weber called the the disenchantment of the world. There's a disenchantment of the world. That is, the world is merely physical. It's only natural. There's no supernatural. What you see is what you get. What you feel is who you are. That's it. But the first few verses of Ruth in chapter 2 are pushing back on that. Pushing back on what C.S. Lewis calls nothing buttery. Okay? Nothing but the physical. Nothing but the natural. Nothing but the seen and the felt. And really, this is at the core of Wendell Berry's third and final embarrassing question that the Bible imposes upon its readers. Are you convinced of the sanctity of the world? Are you convinced of the sanctity of the world? Are you convinced that life, of a life that is not reducible by division, reducible by category or degree, but is one thing, spiritual and material, divided only insofar as his embodied and distinct creatures. And to help us to get more honest, Barry sort of wipes the slate clean. He, he insults both sides of this, of, this cat, of this civil war that's been going on in America since the mid-1800s. Reductive religion is just as objectionable as reductive science. And for the same reason, I love his reason, reality is large and our minds are small. Reality is large and our minds are small. So are you convinced of the sanctity of the world? Are you convinced, like verse 3 suggests, that God is up to something everywhere and all of the time, and especially where you least expect it? Would you believe that God went ahead of a poor foreign widow who is needy at the edges of an ancient Israelite field? Last week I told you that, that, that biblical truth that Jesus hangs around pain. And this week I'm going to add that Jesus also hangs around the fringes of fields with the down and outcasts, with what the Bible calls in Matthew 25, the least of these. And if Jesus is actually there with the least of these, what if he's actually here with us? What if God has bound himself to you, to a Naomi like you or like me? What if God was willing to go ahead of us to the places that we feel like he would show up the least? The moments that we feel like he shows up, up the least. An all-nighter in the Bell computer lab. The real Halloween party at F this past weekend. The library basement and midterms round three. Tommy Pod. There's eight people in one space for Pete's sake. Okay? Or comments. Same meal. All I wish for is chicken parm. 
<laughs> okay? Just look at what we know of Jesus' historic life and tell me that this couldn't be the case. Born years after Naomi and Ruth in the town of Bethlehem, Jesus clung relentlessly to thankless people for a living, always the last to let go in a hug. He voluntarily narrowed himself. He pledged his total love to the self-described bitter ones as well as the ones that are called sweet. What a set of expectations to live under. Jesus died an unjust and horrific death for a watching world that didn't even see him. Didn't really see him as he was. God in the flesh, the one who made all of the heaven and earth. The God who emptied himself so that we, the anxious, the depressed, the criminally bored. So God emptied himself of his glory so that we might be overfilled, that we might be overflowing with his presence and with his highly actionable, uneasy love. Would you pray with me? Father, thank you for this time. Thanks for the sermon. And I, it's challenging as I'll get out. And I, I know this passage is challenging as I'll get out. And I pray that you would just meet us where we are. Um, if we need the words of comfort from Jesus, give those to us. If we need the challenge, give it to us. I pray there's lots of people hurting, and a lot of those people are us. And I pray that you would just meet us where we are in our pain, but you'd help us to also go and meet other people in their pain. Oh God, I'm such a whiner sometimes about how hard life can be. There's a righteous indignation about that. But I pray that you'd help us to, to, to venture by faith into a little bit of discomfort. But also that you would venture into our discomfort too. We need you there, Jesus. We can't do it without you. We ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen.